Amen. Great is his faithfulness. You know, that's what music is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to lift us up to the heavenlies, the presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in us. Great is his faithfulness. Every morning, every morning, we can depend on that. The seasons change. Our life changes. Day in and day out, there are changes. But his faithfulness continues. The psalmist this morning talks about that in Psalms 119. As we share a few verses there on meditation, starting at verse 81 and 82 and then down to 88. It says, my soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? Then down to the end of that um, uh, those several verses, it says, preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the words of your mouth. You know, the psalmist doesn't shy away from expressing his sorrow. And when he was obviously going through something, you know, and we do that too, don't we? And we did not, we should not shy away with calling out to God to come to us with his word, with his faithfulness, and call out to him and say, I need you, Lord. I need your faithfulness. You know, in the New Testament, Paul tells us that uh, we can do that. In 2 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, talks about the hope that comes as new believers uh, to the endurance, the hope that comes with a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And then later on in Thessalonians 5.8, it says, uh, speak, the hope of salvation is a protecting helmet. And he goes on to say, put this helmet on and encourage each other with these words. That's what we come to church for, isn't it? <laughs> we encourage one another with these words. We encourage him, each other, with the faithfulness of God. Yeah, there's crazy stuff that goes on in our life. No doubt, every day, decisions are made, even against us. But we wake up every morning, and we can say, Lord, your mercies are new today. I can walk with you new today. And then we can say, renew me. Bring your faithfulness to my heart. That's what it means, summer and winter, springtime and harvest. When trials are so hard, when life beats us down, and it does, we step into that presence. The Holy Spirit brings us Jesus, doesn't he? Amen. Let's sing that again. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. If you would open your Bibles, Gospel according to Mark. Chapter 12, and you'll also want to mark Isaiah chapter 5. Mark 12, Isaiah 5. We are continuing in our study of Mark's gospel, and as we observed last week, this especially significant portion of Mark's gospel, this is Jesus' last interaction with the various 
groups of religious leaders in Israel. His last public interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and all those other groups. It's a full-time job just keeping up with all of them. This is his last, this is really their last chance to interact with him. And we noticed last week um, how he, encountering the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders uh, caught them really in, in their duplicity. They're questioned by what authority are you doing this uh, was a false question. It wasn't honest. All they were trying to do was change the subject, which of course is what we normally do when we're caught in a situation that we don't want to answer the question or we don't want to deal with the reissue. You change the subject, and that's what he caught them doing. And he didn't go that route. He was talking to them, talking to his entire audience, everyone there about the importance of being real. So we've been talking about being real these last few weeks. And this morning, Jesus will be continuing in that exact same vein, being honest, being truthful, being real with our response to the Lord. And he does it through a very well-known parable. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in the, in the first verse. Mark writes this way, And he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress. And he built a tower and rented it out to the vineyard growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And he, they took him and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some, killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son, and he sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone which the builder has rejected became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him, and he went away. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray that as we look to it, Father, we would have instruction to our soul, for our hearts, for our minds. Father, we, as we navigate life in this uh, fallen world, Lord, we are desperate for the instruction of your word, the guidance of your spirit. We rely heavily on the fellowship of believers, Father, strengthening us one with another. And Lord, in all these things, we want to be faithful and obedient to your word. So guide us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very well-known parable, a very direct parable, didn't take a lot of um profound spiritual insight to figure out exactly what he was talking about. The uh, Pharisees, or the, the Pharisees, I'm going to probably say Pharisees several times. So when I say Pharisee, think chief priest, scribe, and elders, that's who he's talking to. The Pharisees come next, all right? But if I say that, you know that's what I mean, right? Um, they certainly, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, certainly knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. There's, again, no, no great mystery. But there's also a depth to this parable, especially as it relates to us, 
that we can miss if we just gloss over it like, you know, we say, well, there's Jesus tearing up the religious leaders again and leave it at that. There's actually a good deal more to this parable than that. And so that's what we're going to try to find this morning. So what I'd like to do is first just go through the parable, look at what it said, and then take time to try to orient our hearing of this parable in the mind, in the ears of those who first heard it. Try to get the, the, the furniture of the brain, if you will, the perspective, the lens of his first audience. How did they hear it? What was their response? And then from that, I think we'll understand how it speaks uh, to us. So first, uh, the parable itself. Just quickly, we haven't talked about this for quite a while, uh, by definition of exactly what a parable is, we read that word a lot in Scripture, might know, not know exactly what it is. It's a reference to a figure of speech, uh, but it's a specific kind of figure of speech. It's kind of like the difference between saying, you know, well, I heard this old saying, and then saying, well, there's an ancient proverb. One's a lot more specific than the other. Or you might use the phrase, there's an old maxim. It's a little bit more specific than just saying, well, an old saying. So this term parable, a figure of speech, and it's pretty specific. Uh, it's very close to our concept of parallel lines. You catch the parallel sound in the words. It's when you take something that's known, or you're trying to explain something unknown, and you lay something known alongside of it. Parallel thoughts creating understanding. And, and the reason I take the time to say that, the critical thing is, in any parable, there may be multiple points of contact between the one and the other, that which is known and that which is unknown, and those may all be significant, but the thing to keep in mind is always where the parable's going, that primary final point. We get too caught up in the details, we can get off into some craziness sometimes. So it's, there's a point, a singular point, that the parable is trying to teach. We want to keep that in mind. So it says right off in verse 1 that Jesus is here speaking in parables. And he, he says the parable, again, we know it well. A man plants a vineyard, puts a wall around it, digs a vat in it, builds a tower, and rents it out to vine growers. Now the details here are significant. Uh, first, the word order. Now we say in English, a man planted a vineyard. Uh, the word order in, in the Greek text is a vineyard a man planted. Now there's no confusion there in the Greek language. You can do that really easily and understand that a man planted a vineyard. But to put, you put the word vineyard first because that's the focal point. The focal point of the entire parable is about the vineyard. So we want to focus our thoughts constantly on the matter of the vineyard. And then the man put a wall or a hedge around it. Phragmos is the word. It's a word that goes way back in the language. Um, it doesn't speak too much of the makeup or the material used in the wall. It could be stone, it could be wood, it could be, uh, it could be just a good, really dense hedge. But the point that this word carries, the meaning is, it's something that stops. It stops anything from coming in. There's even an old uh, example from ancient Greek literature of a phragmos that was nothing more than a, a, a thorny briar, but it was enough to stop even the wild boars. So it's, 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 a, it's a barrier. It stops anything from getting in that shouldn't be in. And then he builds a, um, he digs down and places a receptacle. It's kind of an interesting word. It doesn't mention him building the wine press per, per se. That's kind of assumed. But he digs down below where the wine press would be to build a receptacle 
for the wine press. And so we've probably all seen you know, pictures or movie clips of, of wine presses in antiquity, um, you know, the low wall that people would climb into and stand and tromp around. If you've seen, for example, if you're watching The Chosen, there's several clips of wine presses in that. Uh, those that uh, went with us to Greece, I think it was five years ago now we went, uh, if you went into my, the old family house, you saw in the corner of the courtyard, a little walled enclosure, wall about that high, that was the wine press. Well, what Jesus refers to in the parable is digging down even lower. They would dig an even deeper trough or receptacle, or if it was stone, they would carve it out of, out of the stone so that when the wine was, or the grape juice was squished, it would have a place to go. So in the parable, the man is careful enough to not only do the, prepare a wine press, but also dig even deeper this receptacle for the grape juice that would dig out. And then he puts a lookout tower so that his vineyard would be safe. And it says he hired out the vineyard to wine growers. Another very specific word. It's the word Yorgos. How many have a friend named George? Know somebody named George? That's what it means. Your friend should be a farmer, right? Um, but when it says Yorgos farmer, we're not just talking about the person in the field. The person in the field would be the worker, the Argatis, or the slave, the doulos. But this is a person who actually specializes. This would be like the head farmer guy. This is the guy who's got a vested interest in the well-doing of the farm. This is a real farmer. Joyce's family, you know, from Idaho. They got some real farmers in that family, and I stand in awe of those people when I watch them. They're just good at what they do. This is the expert, right? So what is all this adding up to as Jesus lays this parallel out? All of this makes the point that this individual planting this vineyard is doing absolutely everything he needs to do to make sure this is a first-class vineyard. Jesus goes out of his way in the parable to point out that the person that plants this vineyard, he's going first class all the way. He's not cutting any corners. He's doing it right, right? First class all the way. So that when the time for harvest comes, he sends his servant to collect the produce of the grapes. It's even clear that he's not interested in his guys going out and selling this wine so he can get the cash. No, he specifically wants the produce of the grapes. And the visual we kind of get right off the bat is of a person that just really cares. He may likely have other vineyards that he has for his business interest, but this is one close to his heart. He's really investing a lot in this particular vineyard. Here's the point. This guy is serious. The man that plants this vineyard is serious, and he should be taken seriously by those he hires. Of course, that's not what happens in the parable. Verse 3, the vineyard keepers, the Yorgos, they have a totally different agenda. And there's a pro progressive rejection of every messenger. The first one, they just beat him up and send him away. The second one, they knock him in the head and abuse him. And the term that is used there for abuse would cover the full range of the abuse a human being can inflict on another. So you're free to use your imagination where that may have gone. They abuse him, send him away. The third one they kill, and so on, and so on, and so on. Verse 5 indicates that a lot were sent, and they were all either beaten or killed, all sent away empty-handed. Verse 6, finally the owner of the vineyard has an idea. He's got one left, his son. 
He says he'll send his son thinking that they will respect him. And again, this is not the normal word for respect. This is kind of an elevated form of respect, kind of a reverential respect. They will regard my son because he represents me. And after all, they know I'm serious about this. Again, we know what happens. Verse 7, the vineyard keepers, they see the son, and they recognize him. This, what happens next is no case of mistaken identity. They know exactly who they're dealing with. This is the heir. We knock him off, the vineyard's ours. Let's kill him. The inheritance is ours. So they took him, verse 8, they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And that's where the parable ends. The rest is Jesus making application. He asked a question in verse 9 that's really critical. We're going to come back to it in a moment. He says, what will the owners of the vineyard do? Jesus is expecting his audience to be able to answer that question. What he's saying is this parable is plenty clear. You should know exactly what I'm talking about. The owner of the vineyard will come. He will destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. And then in verses 10 and 11, he puts like a prophetic Exclamation point there. Have you not read? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our sight. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, right? He's quoting in Psalm 118 at that point. Now, when Jesus says that, we should note something. When he says, have you not read? That usually indicates that he understands that what he has just said did not fully resonate with his audience. There's something his audience either didn't understand or didn't agree with. That expression, have you not read, and then of course you read from Psalm 118, have you not read, indicates that there's a lack of perception in their hearing of what he's just said. And that's what raises the question for us, what did they hear? What in, their, what in what Jesus just said were they not getting? Or what in what Jesus just said was so reprehensible they simply couldn't accept it? Something in what Jesus has said has kind of set them off, right? And that's why we want to ask the question, what was it in their understanding of what Jesus, because it's pretty clear Jesus' point. What is it in that that just wasn't sitting with them, right? Well, you've got to remember, these are a really literate people. And by literate, I mean even those who couldn't read, Jewish people in the first century, even those who couldn't read, they knew their Bibles. They knew their Old Testament really well. And when you reference something or quoted something or even said something that sounded like something, that's where their minds went. And so the moment Jesus said, a man planted a vineyard, there was a place that the mind of every one of his listeners went to, and that is the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. The minute Jesus said, a man planted a vineyard, they went to Isaiah, chapter 5. So let's go ahead and look at that this morning. It actually may have gone even farther back than that. Um, as far back as uh, Psalm 80, verse 8, we read, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it. It took deep root and filled the land. So the idea that Israel was God's vineyard, the connection between the vineyard and the people of God, that's already really well established. It goes way, way back. But it's in the book of Isaiah that he really spells it out. 
Uh, again, think of the terming, think of the wording rather of Jesus' parable, and then look at Isaiah chapter 5. Verse 1 Let me now sing a song for my well beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. Everything to that point is very close to the parable. Close enough they would have made that immediate identification of what Jesus is talking about. But look how Isaiah continues, or the Lord speaking through Isaiah continues. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. In Isaiah, the prophecy in chapter 5 is speaking of the failure of the grapes, right? In other words, the produce. So when Jesus started down that road in Mark's gospel, in his parable, when he started talking about a a guy goes out and he plants a vineyard and he digs it out and he puts a wall and he does all this stuff, they are expecting him to continue in that same vein. Isaiah's condemnation was of the entire population, or rather we should say God's condemnation of, uh, through the prophet Isaiah was of the entire population. Isaiah goes on to say this, verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, what more was there for me to my, do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I expected it to produce good grapes, it, it, it produced worthless ones. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. It will be consumed, break down its wall, and become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I will charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, his delightful plant. The point being, Isaiah's talking about everybody. Most particular, the, pop, the general population. In Isaiah, God is looking at the general population and saying, look at what these people have become. Look at what they have done with my word. Look at what they have done with my house, the temple. Look at what they have done with the truth of the law. They produce worthless grapes. They're just worthless grapes, right? That idea wouldn't be too difficult for a chief priest or a scribe or an elder of the people to deal with. After all, it's that riffraff out there. Common thinking among the leadership of Israel that their problems were because of the ungodliness and the unfaithfulness and the sinfulness of the common people. If the common people would just get their act together and start living according to the law and live righteous and godly lives, we wouldn't have these Romans to deal with. If the godly people had if the ordinary people hadn't been so faithful, unfaithful rather, we wouldn't have all these problems. We'd be in great shape. That's the mindset of the religious leaders of the first century. But that's not where Jesus went. Jesus talked about the vine dresser. Jesus talked about those who were responsible. Jesus talked about those who should have known better. The prophecy of Isaiah 5 implicates the common people, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jesus, and I'm sure when Jesus first started in Isaiah 5, there were probably some in that group of leaders who started to think, amen, brother, preach it. He's going to lay into the common people, set them right. But he didn't do that. No, Jesus redirects the parable to the vine keepers, those who were trained to, 
Those who were appointed to and those who were privileged to care for the vineyard. Unlike of Isaiah, who spoke to all the inhabitants, leader and commoner alike, Jesus focused on the leaders. And that must have been a bucket of cold water. They were, they were the elite. They were the educated. They were the spiritual. They were those whom God obviously favored because he put them in that place. Jesus made it clear that with that place came not just favor, but responsibility, and they had failed. Jesus focused on those who should have addressed the problems of Israel, but didn't. In fact, they were the root cause of the problems. They were the ones that had the answers and stayed silent, withdrawn. They were the ones that were too focused on the religious system and its operation that, to actually profit from it, to understand, profit in a spiritual sense, and understanding. They who were satisfied with their own righteousness and saw no reason to change, but they expected everybody else to change. Is it starting to strike home? Satisfied with their own righteousness and thought everybody else needed to change, and then things will be okay. Actually, of course, Jesus and Isaiah were on the same page. Both understood the problem when the people reject the word, the will, the plan of God. There's, there's so much more, however, in this than just a condemnation of the first century leaders uh, of Israel. Yeah, Jesus lit them up, and, and, and they didn't like it. And so they conspired against him, and they killed him. Classic example again. It wasn't because they misunderstood him, they crucified it's because they understood him. The parable speaks to those who are given privilege and responsibility to care for God's children. It's a serious, stern warning to those with that privilege and that responsibility. It was true in Isaiah's day, it was true in Jesus' day, and it's true right now. And who is that? Well, it's obvious that this parable speaks to people like Pastor Joyce and myself and I read it, and it does scare me. Because it is a very, very clear description of the standards to which I will be held. The expectations for my life, and I'm not entirely comfortable with that, but my comfort level isn't the standard of truth. But of course, it doesn't stop there. It speaks to all of us. It speaks to us at the most basic level in our homes as parents, who raise children. This parable speaks to us. It speaks to us who have co-workers. We either do not know of the Lord or have a severely distorted view of him. We have a responsibility. It speaks to us even within this body as we are all charged with spiritual care for one another. It is a body, it is a family, and we are responsible to and for one another. And this parable speaks to us. I guess, you know, the bottom line in this, have you ever asked yourself seriously, what is it that God has, what was the last thing God asked me to do for the benefit of his body, the church. What is the last thing God asked me to do for the benefit of my family or for the benefit of my coworkers or my neighbors? Actually, I should change the question because I'm not actually sure 
God ever asks anybody to do anything. We're just kind of being polite. And I was a petty officer in the Coast Guard. I always asked the people that work for me to do things. I wasn't asking them. I was just being nice about it. I was telling them. Because I had the insignia on my collar that gave me that authority. And they knew they had to do it. So it was just more pleasant if I asked. I don't think God actually asks us. He tells us. What was the last thing God told you to do? Have you done it? And if you can this morning think, well, I don't ever remember God asking me or telling me to do anything, you might want to work on your listening skills. Because I don't find anywhere in his book where he tells any of us just to sit there and ride along. He's got so much more for us. And it's so much better for us when we're walking in day-to-day. -day. You know, and I'm not saying this like to manipulate anybody or, or, or with the purpose of, you know, doing anything other than say we need to start listening really, really carefully because we don't have the convenience of a high priestly caste that we can put all the responsibility on while the rest of us go about living our lives. New Testament doesn't work that way. Moses said all that all of God's people were prophets. What was Moses saying? He longed for the day when the Spirit of God that moved upon him would move among every member of the community. Well, we've arrived with that. With that. God's Spirit works in the heart and the life of absolutely every believer. Oh, for an attitude in my own heart that says I'm going to consistently actively seek the way, every way I can to make an impact on others. And instead of waiting for God to say, this is what I want you to do, have an eye that says, this is what I want to do. I want to impact people's lives for Christ. God, do I have your permission? Can I jump in? Is this just me or is this you speaking to me? Again, not intended to um, manipulate or shame anybody, to encourage an inventory that causes me to sharpen my own mindset. And it's an important matter. You know, this wasn't included in, in Mark's gospel just to let us know that Jesus chewed out the religious leaders on a given day. I mean, Mark's already made that point pretty well. He did that. No, there's something here for us. As I was wrapping up my notes, and actually it was just this morning, I was thinking about how to in this, we're, we're going south to, um, for the memorial for David's oldest brother, um, Joyce's older brother, David. And um, I mentioned a few weeks back that my wife and I have decidedly different tastes in music and worship music. David was on my side. Yeah. Um, David gave me a great, a great CD years ago uh, entitled Trimmed and Burning. Probably never heard of it, right? By uh, Glenn Kaiser and David Mansfield, or Glenn Kaiser and Daryl Mansfield. If you know anything about old Christian music, you know what that means, right? It was old, good old gospel stuff. If you want to get connected with some really good stuff, Trimmed and Burning, Kaiser and Mansfield, a great video. And one of the songs they sang was the old one, We Shall See the King. We shall see the king. We shall see the king. He's coming in power. God, hail, hail the blessed hour. We shall see the king. 
when he comes. And it ends this way. Are you ready should the Savior come today? Would Jesus say, well done, or go away? My home is for the pure, the vile can never stay. We shall see the King when he comes. The, that old gospel tune asks two questions. Am I ready in that? Am I numbered among the vile or am I numbered among the clean? Now I know enough of myself to know were it up to me, I would be in column A. But through the shed blood of his son, through the power of his resurrection, by faith in him, I got transmitted from the vile to the clean because his son. So I'm ready in that regard, right? But there's another question that one says, is he going to say to me, well done? And that's entirely dependent upon what I've done. What will he find me doing? Should the Lord tarry, what will he find me doing when he comes? I certainly pray he finds me doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Taking care of his people. Taking care of his vineyard. Taking care of his flock. Pick your parable. And I would encourage everyone to take that same inventory. Ask yourself that same question. What will I be doing when he comes? Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, it is so, it's almost fun to watch Jesus just rip into these guys because they were so full of pride and they were so full of religiosity and all that stuff that I, I hope you never find in any of us, Lord. And it's, it's thrilling. We're going to see more of it as we go farther through the chapter of Jesus just slamming these guys. Beautiful thing. Sure, Father, there's a lot of my carnality even in that. I take pleasure. I probably shouldn't take in that. But that's the picture of Jesus just lighting these guys up. And we can stop at that point and go, well, that was fun. Or we can ask ourselves, what of me is being spoken to in this situation? What of me is addressed in this parable? Father, we know that you planted a vineyard among us. It is your people. And you have done everything that could reasonably be expected to provide for us, for our growth, our development, our maturity, our health. That your gospel might be promulgated, spread from generation to generation, Father. We want to be, Father, responsible to that. For those who ask us for a basis of our faith, we want to be prepared with a ready answer for the hope that is within us. Help us to that end. And for the growth and the development of encouragement, Father, of one another. We want to be found active about that as well. Father, if there's a shortcoming in any one of our hearts, I pray that you'd bring it to that, bring that to our mind. And let us be found faithful in obedience and response. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship him this morning.